Dana Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. A couple of videos you posted on Twitter from Saturday's protest. In these clips, you talked to police officers on duty during the protest. You guys are hanging back. That would be a good question for the chief of police. I mean, I haven't seen the cops around people and just like beating the out of each other. A public statement, right? Uh, no, I'm just asking you guys. I mean, you're here. I would defer you to our public information officer. So they told you to hang back? As I said, I defer you to our public information officer. What's your next question? I mean, I'm just wondering why I've been I've been watching all day. People get get you know beat up pretty bad. I haven't seen you guys around much. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how you guys been hanging back today, huh? What's that? You guys been hanging back today? Doing our job. What's your job? I mean, there's been people brawling all day long. I haven't seen you around. Of this video What's your job in this? Shane, Shane, can you talk about the significance of this videotape? Yeah, I mean, I've never seen anything like this uh, in the Bay Area. Um, I've never seen anything this violent. People are getting constantly bloodied throughout the day, and uh, the police are essentially absent for most of the day. Um, you know, the the police were, were there in the beginning, kind of uh, pulling people out of fights, and then uh, were just hanging back, which I think surprised, really surprised a lot of people. I want to go to another video you posted on your Twitter account. Um, in this clip, we hear from a Trump supporter at the protest. I thought this okay. was just a mark for free speech. I was coming to support it. Yeah. I brought this stuff just in case. They started making people bleed. I put it on. I didn't even get my helmet all the way on before uh, the first guy came with a laceration. So I'm sitting there holding him against me and everything. We're trying to get gauze and stuff on him. Is Berkeley uh, symbolic in a certain way? Yeah, because back in the past, this is where—or Berkeley, rather—is okay. where the free speech movement was done by the kids who went to Berkeley. And now it's like the opposite. And, and it really—honestly, it crushes me inside. It really hurts, man. Like, I'm sitting here, like, honestly, I don't even like when our side is, like, trying to fight them. Like, I just—I just want peace. Like, I've broken up two fights now. So, Shane, talk about this Trump supporter and the other Trump supporters you talked to. Well, he was, he was saying something that I heard from a lot of people, that they came out uh, for, for free speech. Uh, he also came from other, another part of the country, which was true for a lot of the people that I spoke to. Um, what was really uh, surprising to me about this demonstration and this rally was the kind of uh, the coalition that came together. I mean, there were uh, white nationalist groups like Identity Europa. There was uh, one one group that spoke at the rally uh, called the Pink Pistols, which is a uh, an LGBT group that uh, are Second Amendment advocates and supporters of Trump because uh, they they support um, the the Muslim ban. Um, there were uh, African-American speakers that, that spoke um, in favor of Trump. Um, there were, uh, was a writer from uh, altright.com who, you know, spreads the conspiracy theory of, of white genocide. I mean, it was a really uh, strange coalition of people that were coming together under this, this kind of one banner of free speech. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and today I am speaking with Kitty Stryker in studio. Now, you've seen Kitty's work in Teen Vogue, which I'm a huge fan of. She's also been in Vice Magazine, uh, Politico, I believe, Rolling Stone, a host of other publications. Kitty works in the area of covering left-wing movements and left-wing ideologies. 
She's also uh, been a part of advocating for sex workers. So we're going to get into a conversation today about all of these things and probably more. Welcome, Kitty. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this because to me, this will be a positive, uplifting conversation. And lately, the news cycle has been just a lot of violence and and uh, not good stuff. So yeah. this will be good for folks to be able to hear something positive for a change. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Oh, man. <laughs> so I want to actually, there's very few experts on the Juggaloos. And I want to talk about them for a second because I think a lot of people on the left might not be familiar with who they are. Uh, so basically, it started out as fans of a band called Insane Clown Posse, but it sort of morphed into something more. And then in 2011, there was this crazy thing that the FBI did. They put Juggaloos on a watch list for terrorism, which was just this crazy wild thing. And then after that, I know sort of dropped off the face of the planet in the news cycle, but I wanted to talk with you about them because you're pretty um, intimately familiar with things that have happened within uh, that group. So explain for the audience a little bit of um, who they are and how they historically came to be. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's, it's Juggalo. Oh, did I, <laughs> what did I? You said Juggaloo. It's not Oh, you know what? I'm probably thinking Boogaloo, Juggalo. Yeah. They are very different. Very um, different. Some ways in which you could see some similarities, but they are they are pretty different. Um, Thank you for catching that. Yeah, Juggalos for a start are way less organized. Um, uh, And their violence is more good natured, I would say. Yeah. Um, So Juggalos uh, have been the name for fans of the Insane Clown Posse, God, since the 90s, I believe. And it was something that the fans basically took on and ran with and ICP was like, Oh, cool. Okay. I guess our fans have a name now. And it's become this real sense of family. Uh, it's a very urban working class movement that also sort of, it, I, it takes in a bunch of isolated working class, mostly white men, um, and gives them this united, thing, this united fandom. And what I love about them is their uh, genre called horrorcore, which is like a very camp kind of 80s horror slasher film kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so their songs are very graphic, but in this extremely cartoonish way. I'm not someone who likes horror movies. I don't like lots of gore, but... It feels really different when you listen to a song about someone's spine getting ripped out through their balls versus, you know, actual violence that can really happen. And so, like, it's kind of a nice steam valve. It's a way to let off some of that energy in a mosh pit with a bunch of other people who feel the same way. And at the end of the day, you know, yeah, your lip might be busted and you're covered in sticky soda, but you're, you're family, you know, like it doesn't matter what your politics are. People challenge each other all the time, but like there's less of a sense of, oh, well, there's those juggalos and there's those juggalos. Like people in general will unite under being a juggalo and that's more important than anything else. Now there's lots of infighting. Absolutely. Like there are definitely, there's, People who side with the insane clown posse right. and people who side with Twisted, who was sort of 
Insane Clown Posse's protégés, they had a big, messy breakup, and Juggalos picked their sides. And that is an area that they'll feel very strongly about, um, which interestingly gets into a lot of questions about worker politics, contract work. What does it mean to be an independent contractor? What do we owe each other when someone is your boss and also your friend? Like, very complicated, interesting worker politics stuff. Not that they would necessarily phrase it that way. Right, right. But there is that sense of, like, well, you know, don't fuck this person over. You guys are family. You know, like, they have some of the ideas, just not necessarily the language. Okay, that's actually interesting. So they don't necessarily self-identify these things as being political, even though you could argue that in nature they are political? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of jugglers, I think it's starting to shift. Um, Initially, jugglers were super irritated at the way the media framed their march on D.C. as like jugglers versus the Nazis. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't give a fuck about the Trump supporters who were there. Okay. They had the attitude of don't come here and start shit and there won't be shit. And that was just how they how they felt about it. And uh, there wasn't there weren't any problems at all because you didn't have people coming from from the right or the left trying to instigate um <laughs> some sort of mass battle. Um, and so I think the media kind of got that wrong, that mm-hmm. juggalos were not, were actually very invested in being on their best behavior. Right. They did not want to be in the news as fighting and causing problems. They wanted to show that, hey, they're adults and can handle their, their shit, you know? And like, I have to say, like, seeing a concert in front of the, Lincoln Memorial with Fago flying around and then seeing Juggalos picking up the Fago bottles and making sure all the trash was cleaned up afterwards. Mind boggling. Amazing. That's wild. So one of their core beliefs then is definitely that they are against neo-Nazis, Nazis and other forms of races, racism, right? Yeah, they're very anti-racism. There's a lot. I mean, that's woven into the music. Um, Shaggy Too Dope and Violent J, who make up the Insane Clown Posse, are both very anti-racism. Also very against the Confederate flag. They're against um, child sexual abuse. They've written about that. They've had an interesting shift around misogyny. Um, Initially, they were very influenced by, um, by the culture which, you know, metal culture, rap culture, I think rap gets a lot more shit for it, but metal culture is super misogynist. Yeah. Too. Um, I think that a lot of their music reflected that, right. but uh, their next um, Joker's card, which is what they named their, their albums, is a, a female Joker's card, the first female Joker's card. And so a lot of their songs on that album are about talking about these things from a female point of view, which I find really interesting. Um, So I'm very curious to see how they tackle some of the same topics, but through uh, a female point of view. No, that's great. So there's been a shift there. So uh, what are some of the other core beliefs that the Juggalos share, other than being anti-racism? That's the main one, but I'm sure that there are others too. I think you mentioned workers' rights. Yeah, well, so they're very for the working class. Um, And I mean, I think they're for working class individuals. I don't think of 
them as necessarily uniting to like unionize okay. juggalo albums or you know like <laughs> record companies i don't see that happening um necessarily i mean it it might accidentally right right <laughs> but like mutual aid i would say is a okay. very important part of being a juggalo like you take the shirt off your back and give it to a juggalo who needs it like taking care of the homeless is really important um, harm reduction when it comes to drug use is really okay. important. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of conversations about sex work, but the conversations I've seen have been positive, though also kind of misogynist, oh, but like in a, yeah. in a like, let bitches do what they want kind of way. Kind so of it's way. like, I'll take it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really interesting because I come from a very sensitive leftist bleeding heart perspective yeah and i came into this community of people who are extremely rough around the edges and proud of that you know mm -hmm. they don't want to change that they pride themselves on being inflappable okay. but what's nice about that is when you're trying to have conversations with them you can find their areas of sensitivity and kind of poke at that a little bit and they'll be like oh right I get it now. And right. like, you can't try to have a conversation with a juggalo in public about misogyny or about um, Antifa. They will double down. I mean, that's just kind of what you see on Twitter, right. you know, or on Facebook as well. Like if you try to challenge people's core beliefs in public, they're gonna double down because they don't wanna lose face in public. Mm -hmm. But if you get them one-on-one, -on -one, most of the time, right. they're actually very receptive and very curious. Um, I think the juggalos that I know have felt very misunderstood. They feel like the media only cares about them when they feel they can use them for some end, mm -hmm. which is super irritating for them, which, you know, I've <laughs> As Antifa, I totally understand. Yeah. Like we get we get lots of shit when it's yeah. uh, not convenient and get praised when it is. Um, so I feel like juggalos understand that um, as well. A another core belief, I think, is um, you know poverty and and yeah. dealing with poverty. But one of the things that I really like about them is they're proud in their poverty. Like there's not a sense of being aspirational. Like you don't want to be wealthy unless it's to give to other jugglers. I see. There's, there's songs about that where it's like, hey, I came into a bunch of money and I gave it all away. And it's like, I love that. That feels like a very honest, yeah, like heartwarming sentiment, you know? And it's coming from people wearing clown makeup you know <laughs> like but I but I appreciate that it speaks I mean you know to be an academic about it it speaks to the role of the jester to challenge authority and when you see that and when you see some of the ways in which they pull on ideas of heaven and hell and what is morality like they're tackling really complicated interesting questions in working class language and yeah. horror tropes. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah. You know, and 
I feel like sometimes we seek to validate it by intellectualizing it, but I think it's valid as it stands. And I think maybe what the left needs to work on is like learning how to get away from all of our yeah. academia. I don't disagree with that actually as an ex-academic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, you know, it's just a lot of academia is inaccessible and yeah. it's meant to be that way. Which is unfortunate. Uh, you know, I, I studied philosophy. I have a graduate degree in philosophy and that's absolutely the case. And it's unfortunate because if you're just doing it for your own um, to make yourself feel more smart or something, there's no point to any of it, right? It's, it's re worthless at that point. Um, you mentioned yeah. in passing, I want to go back and talk about the clown makeup because I think a lot of folks are unfamiliar with this movement. So that's one of the things that they're known for is wearing the clown makeup. What is the story behind that? I mean, I think they just think it looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I, if I recall, now keep in mind, I am not an ICP expert. Like okay. I'm a fairly new juggalo. I've been into this since like 2016. So I'm sorry, juggalos in the audience who know way more than me. But my understanding <laughs> is that, yeah, like ICP were a couple of dudes who were super into wrestling and they knew they needed a gimmick. Okay. And so they were like, okay, right, clowns. Yes, clowns are like scary, but also funny. They're goofy but they're also challenging. Like this is something we can work with. Right, and so right. a lot of their music has a very sort of carnival, like creepy carnival feel, which is one of the things I love about. It. I mean, I was a clown before I was a juggalo. Okay. And so for me, my journey started with like erotic sex clowning. And now I'm in the juggalo sphere, um, which to me feels totally natural. Yeah. It, no, it works. <laughs> so yeah, that's... And so there's nothing yeah, deeper so there. There's no, no, um, but interestingly, um, I, I wrote a piece on how Juggalo face paint is good for uh, challenging surveillance because like um, uh, Facebook's auto tag feature for yeah. a long time, I don't know if this is still true, but um, it can't recognize human features through the white clown face. Okay. And so, and the way that clown makeup tends to uh, break up your facial features or be asymmetrical. Um, yeah, it, it actually does a lot to make it difficult to identify you. And I mean, face recognition is not the only way that we get surveilled, right. certainly, your gait, your clothing, etc. But it is an interesting thing to think about that like, oh, here, here jugglers are at the forefront of being anti-surveillance and they didn't even know that. <laughs> Exactly. Like they, that so, wasn't on purpose, but it's right. certainly interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. I mean, so if you want to evade Palantir's software out of the public and et cetera, then wear some, wear some clown makeup. Interesting. So now let's talk about the FBI aspect because this is very puzzling to me. How did they land on, on the FBI terrorism watch list? How does this make sense? Um, well, I think, to understand that, you have to understand the times. And the times were ones where Dungeons and Dragons made people, you know, children of Satan. And yeah. Marilyn Manson made people shoot up schools. You know, okay. like, so there's this tendency to want to demonize fans of unfavorable music or okay. unfavorable hobbies. 
Um, now, granted, individual juggalos have done some incredibly violent, creepy, messed up shit. Like, you know, you've definitely seen, uh, you know, media. Like, I, I, one of my favorite, my favorite stories is a juggalo in Massachusetts wanted to hear the song My Axe by ICP so badly that he went to the radio station with a hatchet and threatened them if they didn't play it. And wow. he got tasered yeah. and kept going, which I felt really spoke to the juggalo, like, you know, keep calm and carry on yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> um, but it's like, I, I don't know, even that, I kind of love it. Like, there's this sense of, like, covering your eyes and peeking out that happens sometimes with jugglers. And they're very dedicated to the music. They're very dedicated to other jugglers. Um, I appreciate that, you know, they have a very keen sense of street justice. When I was at gathering of the jugglers, I saw a woman who was getting pushed around by her boyfriend and like 10 jugglers appeared out of the forest wow. and just surrounded him. And we're like, you're not going to do that. Well, another one like led her away. And I was just like, shit, like this is better than what I've seen in some leftist circles. Yeah. So like, you know, um, it does tend to be like you get a beat down and that is, that is your punishment. And then it's over. You don't have a lot of like ongoing accountability. You okay. get a little bit of like back channel warnings about people, but for the most part, there's this sense of like, you do the thing, you get your punishment, and then you're free to try again. How many, um, how big is the movement, would you say? And can we call it a movement? I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a movement any more than I would say Harry Potter fans are a movement. Okay. Um, you know, like, it's, <laughs> there are a bunch of people, I mean, well, I, <laughs> I have feelings about how we call things communities that aren't right. actually communities that don't have any accountability for each other. I would argue that juggalos, all juggalos are more of a solid community because there is that sense of interpersonal accountability and interpersonal care more so than you see sometimes in the queer community. There, I said it. Um, but like, yeah, I wouldn't say it was a movement because I don't think that they have goals Okay. Like that, you know, I think that um, there are many different types of jugglers who have many different types of inclinations in terms of like what they want to see in the world. You do see some uniting elements in the music that okay. tend to bond people together, like a hatred of, of Richie bitches, you know, that's universal. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some juggalo Trump supporters and there are juggalo like extreme leftists yeah. and they often have a they often get told by other juggalos to stop fighting each other and remember that they're both juggalos. And right. that is more important <laughs> than their personal beliefs. <laughs> Got it. OK, that's like, really, sense. really interesting. No, it is. It's a very fascinating group that uh, I don't think people know enough about and have, and what they do know is not necessarily authentic to what's actually going on. So, which is why I wanted to talk about this because I think, 
I think people want to learn about that. So the origins of Antifa come from the 1930s. These, this was a group that loosely started to fight fascism in Europe, right? So you saw them fighting brown shirts in the streets of uh, Nazi Germany before it was even really Nazi Germany, uh, fighting against Mussolini, Spain, etc. What, um, what can you tell us about historical Antifa? So I was doing a little bit of research on this. The term Antifa as a shortening of anti-fascist is something that came about in like the 1950s. Okay. And it was proposed that it be added to the dictionary then, but that wasn't in wide enough usage um, at the time. So I believe that there were some attempts to use and or Antifa uh, I should say, because the emphasis is important. Right. Um, and let, yeah, there were some folks that were trying to use that more than the right wing took it on and interestingly took it on overwhelmingly after 9-11. Right. Um, and I, I think personally, I don't have any proof of this whatsoever, but my suspicion is that the reason why you saw anti-fascists being deemed antifa with that specific emphasis is because it makes it sound foreign and it makes it sound like a foreign terrorist group yeah it sort of fits with this uh demonization islamophobia that we were seeing at that time and so yeah i think i i think i suspect that there is some subconscious influence to use Antifa because that emphasis sounds more Middle Eastern. Um, And I I think that that fed this inherent distrust that the right really wanted to encourage people in. Yeah, and now it's just become adopted that way in modern parlance. It's interesting you bring that up. I like the I like the way that sounds better. I have to admit. (laughs) Yeah, no, it does. Because it sounds more like anti-fascist, right? Which is what it is. Well, and like, I think if you were going to say anti-fascist, then it'd be like anti-fa would be the emphasis, would be at the end. And so it's like, it's so interesting to me how language, just the way we use language influences the way we think about things oh my without gosh, even yes. really noticing it. And like, that's another thing. Using the emphasis of antifa pulls it away from it being short for anti-fascist. And I think that was very much on purpose. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, and I've spoke with a lot of, of folks that are affiliated with the movement, especially in recent months as I've been covering protests. And the unification there is, again, we're against all forms of racism, all forms of right, white supremacy, all forms of fascism. That's that's the unifying principle, right? So it's, it's odd that they became the boogeyman for all of these things, right? And it's not just the right that does this. I think um, to, a certain ex- is, is, to a certain extent, the media does as well. I've spoken to liberals that, that think they're bad guys. And it's like, why would you think that? Their main goal is simply to fight fascism in, in all of its forms. Why would you not be pro against fighting fas- fascism? Fascism is bad, right? So, um, well. Now, Go ahead. That's that's exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's just that simple. So like, so it's been sort of uh, weaponized in that sense, I think. And so, which is why I think it's important to talk about it. Uh, now, you self-identify as being part of this movement, yes? Yes. Okay, great. So now you were there in Berkeley, I believe. What year was that again? The big one. 2000, uh, 2009. 
2017. 2017, right. 2016, mostly 2017. So describe for the audience some of what you saw there in Berkeley. We had Proud Boys were definitely present. We had, uh, you know, the beginning, I would say the beginning of what could be called the the Trump movement, because I don't think the Trump movement is solely about Trump. I think it's bigger than that. And I think it's something that's going to continue. So talk with us a little bit about some of the things you saw there in Berkeley in 2017. Well, I mean, I had been protesting um, various right-wingers talking at UC Berkeley, which is kind of what began the um, the battles for Berkeley, as they became called. Um, and so I was there when Milo got protested and um, ended up leaving campus. Um, right. And what i saw was a bunch of people peacefully protesting shouting a lot certainly um for the most part not getting provoked but there were there were like right-wing um citizen journalists shall we say uh who were out there trying to provoke people into fighting them on camera um and uh i saw that a few times and um you know, I was there as a medic, so I was trying to, like, encourage people not to take the bait uh, just for optics reasons and also because, like, clearly that's what they wanted. And, um, you know, I, I don't believe in caving into submissives demanding to be hurt. I think that they need to earn it. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I feel like uh, what you saw happening there was this desire to be made into a martyr. Okay. And then the police at some point started shooting like little pepper pallets to try to disperse the crowd. The uh, crowd retaliated with a couple of fireworks being flung at the police who were shooting at them, mind. Um, I remember CNN reporting on that, like, showing cops with guns pointed at the crowd and saying, what is that? Is that some sort of weird long range camera? And I was just like, for fuck's sake, like, are you kidding me? And so like that incident, (laughs) what, what the media ended up saying about that was that anarchists, of course, it's always us, it's always the anarchists, right? Anarchists, for no reason at all, just started shooting fireworks at the police and smashing windows um, of right. the the student um, building um, and setting setting a um, what was it a light a, a light that had been set up on fire. Um, the light caught on fire totally accidentally. To be honest, <laughs> like that was not a purposeful thing. Um, Windows got smashed after the cops were shooting at people. Yeah. Um, because people got really angry. Yeah. And also, you know, I think that you saw various right wingers trying to like pepper spraying people and then crying on film when they got pepper sprayed back or got hit in the face back or whatever. So you saw the beginning of this um, this sort of retelling of what was happening mm-hmm. where the cameras only went on after the first hit. Okay. So there was this tendency, and, and I mean, you know, Andy knows is, is Andy knows the worst. The was worst. he there present in Berkeley? 
I did. I never ran into him, but this is it's his journalist technique. Yes. Technique. <laughs> Journalism. You he know, steals video too. Quotations. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this method, this extremely effective method of only turning on the camera after you've attacked first. So that way, the only thing on camera is you getting attacked. You can say, I don't know how this happened. Right. Um, you know, and we've seen that used repeatedly. And, yeah. and the problem is, is that even after the footage is, is shown in its entirety and we see, oh, no, that attack happened after they were already attacked. This was actually self-defense. Right. It doesn't matter. The media doesn't cover that. The media is no longer interested when it's like, oh, we goofed, you know, like, right. oh, it turns out that the guy who hit the right winger with the hammer was getting attacked with the hammer first. Exactly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and so, you know, I think I absolutely blame the the liberal media for participating in that. Yeah, I agree. And I I feel very strongly that they have a lot of accountability yeah. for January 6th. They absolutely ignored anti-fascist activists for That's years right. and years. They demonized us. They regularly posted articles and think pieces about how aren't we the real terrorists? Aren't we the real fascists? Right. And then when the Capitol got stored, they were like, where did all of this come from? And right. I was just like, I don't even know. Nah, <laughs> girl, so, I'm with it you. It was so aggravating. It is aggravating. As one of the few media persons that have been covering this stuff and ringing the warning bells now for quite some time, I, I agree with everything you're saying right now. The mainstream media has definitely painted it that way. And, you know, let's talk about January 6th for a, for a moment because... One of the things I've noticed on, um, if you go through the archives of videos from January 6th, including ours, uh, John Farina's, you'll see that they're, they, initially a lot of them were saying that they, these aren't Trump people doing this, they're Antifa plants, which is <laughs> completely false. Now, these, this is 100% Trump supporters all the way. Anti-fascists are not organized enough. Yeah, they just and, and they weren't even <laughs> present. There, there were none there. There was no counter-protest set. There was literally no counter-protest, no Antifa members there anywhere. So this is just hogwash that they said this. But you can see through going through the videos. I've been able to identify a Proud Boy leaders breaking into the Capitol, communicating with each other on, on how to do it. I've identified three percenters um, that have, you know, and, and the FBI obviously is, is indicting and arresting these folks as well. But the problem I have is this, even, even in the face of this, they've, at every protest, literally every one, I cannot recall a single protest that I've covered in which the police were not facing BLM and the counter protesters 100% of the time and never turning around to look at what was going on behind them with the Trump yep. protesters, and more than once there was violence going on. Um, inc- I mean, I even have video of one guy, I remember one day, w- waving a handgun around, and the cops were all facing BLM, and I'm like, turn around, there's a guy waving a handgun behind you. Are you kidding me right now? And being even after being told that, the cop didn't turn around and do anything about it. I even sent video to the detective of it, didn't respond to me. So there's yep. definitely two ways in which uh, they view protesters. And it came to a head on January 6th. I think the police didn't see it coming. They should have. And now we have video where I can, uh, we can even show the audience where 
you have uh, militia looking types and proud boys facing off with the police and they're they're saying to the police stand down stand down stand down police join us come join us we're we're the patriots here stand down and come and join us that's our house we're going to take it over we want our country back uh, you know this is the language that they were using and when the cops didn't do that they started punching the cops i have videos of them pulling out pepper spray and bear mace and bear macing the police so now I have I can say without equivocation, I've never seen anybody from BLM, Antifa or any of these other groups, uh, movements, I should say. I have never seen them act violently with the cops doing this. Not once have I ever seen them pull out bear mace and spray a cop. Not once have I, have I even when they are being attacked by the police, I don't see them hitting the police back. They comply and they go down on the ground. Right. So the idea that the right-wing militia, the right-wing the right wing groups like the Proud Boys aren't the violent ones that we should be worried about is emphatically ridiculous, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so- I mean, I, I will say I have absolutely seen some leftists get some good shots in. Okay, and good. good on th- and good on them, I say. You know, like, fuck the police. But, okay, um- you know what? I take that back. There was one time I did see, I'm just remembering now that you said this, there was one time I saw a husband hit an LAPD officer and he had every right to do it because the LAPD officer literally grabbed his wife and threw her over this barricade in an incredibly violent fashion. Like I was shocked by what I saw. And the next thing I know, the husband came out of nowhere and was like, poof. Yeah. (laughs) But I was like, yeah, I agree that cop deserved that. So anyway. And, and And that's the thing, right? Is that when we fight back against the police, we are very aware that we could die. I don't think that the Proud Boys right. were scared of that. I no. don't think that they were like they were like, oh, maybe we'll have a little rough and tumble, but like right. it'll be fine. And we don't go into protests feeling that. Like right. we will, we will try to de-arrest people. We will um, throw a, a smoke grenade back at right. the police. You know when we can. If we can do it safely, absolutely. And, you know, and fuck yes, I say. <laughs> but yeah, the like, smoke gra- grenades are actually really good to break up fights when they happen, too. I've seen I've seen Antifa members throw smoke bombs at Trump guys that were hitting their guys to try to break up the fight. And it, and it, it is pretty effective, and it's safe enough. It's not like tear gas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, like, I, I think that, you know, what we keep, what I keep coming back to is, we're in a low-grade war, and black people have been in a low-grade war with the police yeah. for basically forever. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that we, especially we as white people, we don't always see the front lines of that war. Right. And when we do see it, it is shocking. Right. Um, it is horrifying. And, yeah, absolutely, the cops treat um, the right wing completely differently. I I was at all of those battles for Berkeley and I, you know, sewed up people's wounds on the street while fighting tear gas. Like I learned how to walk into the tear gas to get people rather than trying to get away from it. But it was it was intense. It was super rough. And like I had I had to learn to strategize. I went with incidentally often a group of um queer people and juggalos (laughs) and you know we strategized amongst ourselves as a medic unit 
to help keep people safe mm-hmm. and to keep ourselves safe. Um, and because of that, we didn't get too many injuries. We had one arrest. Um, and, uh, yeah, like we were able to avoid a lot of the, of the issues for the most part because we were super organized and because we didn't look threatening. We didn't, I mean, and I, you know, it's, it's frustrating, but like dressing in black block is effective as a tactic for some things, but it is not necessarily the right tactic for everyone at a protest. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there was a period of time. I, I remember seeing a group called the pastel block who went out there and, um, you know, they did not try to look like each other. They were not trying to blend in. But because they were in pastels, people didn't fight them. Ah, you know, because they looked like My Little Ponies. Nobody <laughs> wanted the optics of punching a My Little Pony, you know? And, and that was a very effective tactic. I watched people in the pastel block pull people out of fights to give them medical care. I watched them push back against people who were trying to get photos of the injured. Right. And people generally respected them because there wasn't that inherent fear of black block. Now I love black block and black block protected me a lot as a, as a medic. Um, I have immense respect for people who are doing that frontline work. It is hugely important. And I would have gotten myself very badly injured if it was not for black block. So I'm a big supporter yeah i just think it's also important to remember that it is one tactic in a bunch of tactics and that unfortunately the media by equating antifa with black block and saying that they're one and the same that all of them are anarchists i think that it alienates a lot of people who want to go to protest but are like "Mm, from what i hear like, if I dress in black block, I'm going to be expected to go and smash windows and, and set trash cans on fire. And that's not really my <laughs> thing, true, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm less into that. <laughs> and, like, that's not... <laughs> that's A, that's not all that black block does. Like, no one ever covers black block feeding the community or yeah. filling potholes. You know, black block, black blocks, as a tactic, are useful for a host of things Yeah, that police intervention can be a problem for and most of them aren't violent but the the media most of them only wants yeah. to sh- but the media wants to show the stabby stab you know like that's that's what sells papers right um and so i think that that is a real problem um you know i try to remind people that there are ways to be involved if you have children if you are disabled if you have mental health issues that don't enable you to be in a crowd everybody is useful in these protests and frontline people are not the only people who exist and so like while i both want to appreciate them for their labor and and their sacrifice um i also want to make sure that people know that there's space for them if they don't feel like they can do that there's lots of other things they can do Right. So let's um, let's explain a little bit more clearly, because a lot of people uh, do associate um, Antifa and Black Bloc as one and the same. They are different. 
But um, can you clarify for the audience, um, are all members of Black Bloc also members of Antifa? And it's not the case that all Antifa members are part of Black Bloc, or are they entirely separate? What's the history there? Well, I mean, A, I would say, like, um, I don't think, I, I'm, I'm of the belief, as much as I love to joke about it, and yes, I have the uh, anti-fascist credit card that was passed around, um, <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, it's not actually an organization. No, it's not. Like, yeah, we all joke about it being an organization because it's really funny to us, um, <laughs> especially because most, at least most of the anti-fascists I know are super disorganized ADHD yeah. anarchists like I am. And so we're like, Haha, that's funny that you think that we have all of this like governmental right. power and like capability to answer emails. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> You think we're much more functional than we in fact are. Right. But right, like, right. Um, so anti-fascism is a huge range of beliefs. And yeah. like, I think that, you know, for example, one of the things that I see a lot happening amongst liberals versus leftists is like, liberals are like, well, I'm against fascism. But how am I defining fascism? And like yeah. those discussions, I think leftists tend to be much more no tolerance at all. Right. And liberals are like, well, right. tolerance to a point. Like there's there's fascism and then there's capital F fascism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, you know, I agree with that. That's <laughs> a it's a frustrating discussion to have, but I think it's an important one to like hammer those things out and I don't think there's going to be a universal agreed to manifesto right um I think it is a thing that changes from community to community I think that white people are going to define fascism very differently from black people yeah I think that we can learn a lot from each other in listening right, right, right. to how we define fascism and like coming to it with an open mind rather than like feeling like we know the answer so Anti-fascism is a huge ideology that encapsulates a ton of different types of people. Black Bloc is a very specific tactic right. that is used to avoid surveillance and police retaliation um, and doxing. And doxing, So, yeah. like, you know, I, which, you know, happens both from the government and from the right wing. That's right. Um, so I think that... Like they are, there is some crossover sometimes. There is, it is a bit of a Venn diagram, but I think that they are comparing apples to oranges. Okay. Like, you know, you have a tactic that is used by anti-fascists and also used by a lot of other groups. Right. And yeah, I imagine that most people who do black blocking tend towards like leftist ideologies and anti-fascist ideologies. Yeah. Um, but it's a tactic. It could be used by anybody. And mm -hmm. so therefore, like, you know, I, it can be used by people who don't believe those things, which is one of the reasons why when you go to a protest, like you go with a unit that you trust, right? You don't necessarily hook up with, you know, a, a black block group and trust everything that they say you have no idea who those people are that's the point right <laughs> that's right. that's it working as intended is that you have no idea who these people are so you also have to trust your gut a lot and like 
they probably will have your back, but they might not. And you really don't know if the person in that black block is representative of the group or not. Right, right. I tend to see um, some of the same folks at the protests um, here in Los Angeles. And a, a couple dozen are also probably uh, BLM members. So, And it is, it is a tactic that they've used effectively, not for violence, but to, you're right, to, to not be identified, to be able to. Um, and they also tend to see themselves as security for those that are not in Black Bloc. So I oftentimes yes. will see that they are on the outside of the perimeters of the protests, watching to make sure that there isn't any Proud Boys or some other folks, because I've also seen that happen. We have a group here that travels from Huntington Beach to Tahunga to Beverly Hills. They've tried to, um, sh- they've shown up, Your Belinda, they show up and they, they stage what would be like Trump counter protests to BLM organized protests, but they can be violent and they could come in there with the, um, with the, wanting to be violent. That's what they're looking for, right? So uh, in my experience, I've been thankful a couple of times too where they've come to my rescue where I was tear gassed on one occasion and it was those guys that came in and got me out and got me uh, medical attention. Does anybody know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not okay. <laughs> Does And I literally, in that moment, was like, I'm going to die right now. I can't breathe, like, because I really got it bad right in the face. Yeah. So I was really well, thankful for that. And then here's, and here's what makes it so fucking complicated for me, right? Like, I've had Oath Keepers be that as well. Huh. Now that's <laughs> interesting. me from Proud Boys. And, you know, I don't trust Oath Keepers farther than I can throw them. And I'm very weak in my upper body, so I can't throw them very far. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> like, I think there is there is a weird thing that happens in protest spaces where you begin to suss out, like, this person right. looks like these other people, but they ethically feel differently or their, their intentions are different. Mm-hmm. So you have to make these snap judgment like well this one's not hitting me right now so i'm gonna go towards that one rather than this one who is trying to hit me right now um and yeah yeah i think it the the berkeley battles were interesting because i could see that there were some people who were there you know doing it for the vine doing it for the gram like they dressed up in crazy costumes and they wanted to be seen they wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be on Vice screaming at somebody in a gladiator outfit, you know? Based, like that's not Wait, can I have a moment to to suggest that you might be referring to Base Spartan? That's right, John Tron. Fuck what you think in your life. Nobody likes you. I'm concerned you and your family's going to burn. Bye. Bye, John. Uh, yeah. AKA John Toronto. <laughs> What a weird dude. Like, I have covered that guy in, on more than one occasion. He is, uh, he's very racist. Yeah, he's a, also weird relationship with his daughter. Yeah, like, Bianca. That tattoo yeah. video was a little oh, much for me. Oh, I've forgotten oh. about that. That is yeah. so weird. And in, and in fact, Kitty, he was he was at the protest um, where Belinda Nurbo was was attacked it was an absolute hate crime as far as i'm concerned but a group of trump supporters surrounded this black woman attacked her punched her 
bear maced her, ripped her weave off. Um, I have video of, of, of them holding up the weave saying, this is the first scalping of the new civil war. I did that. You guys are on the wrong side of the street, I think, yeah. man. I did the first scalping huh? of the new You're civil war. You're on the wrong side of the street. So yeah, these these guys are incredibly racist. Base Spartan yeah. is Base Spartan is bad news. He's also a proud boy. Yeah. Well, and then and then you know Kyle Chapman is Kyle like, Chapman's another one I have a file on. He runs an account on yeah. Telegram called Proud Goy. You tell me. Yep. Yeah. He's incredibly. Yeah, yeah. He's a neo-Nazi too. So where he's basically saying we're the real Proud Boys. We're the 1488 Proud Boys. Which you know for folks that don't know what 1488 means, it it's uh, Nazi language. It's it's the 14 words about having white children and saving the white race. And then the 88 stands for Heil, Heil Hitler. So it's, uh, you know. Which is weird because Kyle Chapman is married to an Asian woman. So like. Oh, that is what? so weird. I didn't know that. <laughs> is he really? Yes. Ah. It's mind boggling. You know, so I've like, seen a lot of Proud Boys that are both, you know, not only Hispanics, obviously, but, but Asian members. And it's really baffling to me. Well, I mean, I think, well, I, I think there's a lot of different things happening, right? Like, I I remember commenting to, I forget what, who was, uh, actually, it might have been Ford Fisher. Okay, was, Ford, yeah. Yeah, I, I love Ford. I um, love Ford, too. <laughs> I, I, Ford. I've had to, I've had to calm down some Antifa folks around Ford before. Oh, really? Um, yeah, like, because, you know, he is. Oh, he's like, he's like, he's like a true journalist in the sense where he just doesn't take sides. Yeah. Okay. And, I get that. You know, and because of that, he gets access sometimes to like, that's the right. Cowboys, you know, prettying themselves up to go to the protest, that's go to right. the big party. Um, Which and, is important that know, we get that video. Yeah, folks. I'm it super is. grateful that he's there, but I, I can understand too. why, like, if you don't know him very well, you're right. like, oh, yeah. Why is he on the bus with these guys, guys. you know? And, like, I, I think that for him, you know, yeah. he's not trying to, like, criminalize them, but he is impassionately he's trying to cover them. Yeah. showing what's happening. Yeah. And, like, I've I've grown to really appreciate that. But I think, yeah. I think I remember saying to Ford in passing, like, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of, like, white men on both sides who just want to fight each other. And, like, can't we just rent a ring? And just let them punch each other if that's what they want to do and leave the right. rest of us out of it. Because right. I think there is a lot of that. There oh, is there definitely this, is. Which, you know, which I see at Juggalo shows too, you know? Like, I think there is this desire to just brawl just sometimes. <laughs> and like, hey, you know, I've been in brawls too. It's fun. I get it. I enjoy it sometimes, you know? But like... The problem is, is that it's spilling over to a bunch of other people who right. don't want to be in a brawl, who are there to, to protest. And like, it is easy to find yourself in a brawl that you weren't expecting. I right. mean, there's there's a couple of drag bars in San Jose I could tell you about that yeah. evolve into brawls <laughs> very often. Um, and, you know, you're just minding your own business, having a beer. And then all of a sudden there's a fight breaking. Right, out. right, right. Um and I think that when you get shoved in a situation of extreme tension, there is a desire to push back. Right. There is a like fight or flight that happens. Um, and so I think what you see is a few people really want to fight and a bunch of people reluctantly are like, oh, okay, fine. 
Like, you right. know, I'd like to not have all my teeth knocked out. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, I guess I got to do this then. And like, <laughs> you see both of those things happening. Right. And then there are, and then there are people who are just getting wrapped up in it because they're just there. And so, you know, like, I'm a, I'm not against violence. Sometimes I think violence is important as a, as a way, as a deterrent, you know, mm-hmm. um, there are some people who do seem to only respond to a violent counter protest. Yeah. But I will also say that, um, you know, every time I have seen people smashing up windows or setting trash cans on fire, the actual people getting hurt is far less. And I will always okay. choose a window over, over a person. A, yeah, 100%. You know, so, I, I, I do remember walking around in Berkeley once and there was uh, there were some folks who were smashing uh, city, Berkeley city vehicles, windows. And uh, someone was like, oh, should, shouldn't we stop them? And I was like, I pay taxes. Like, yeah. these are my windows to break. <laughs> like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and like, I think, I don't know. I just don't understand this desire to protect property. Over humans, which is what it's that, about, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So like for me, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I don't care if windows get smashed up. I don't really yeah, care okay. if trash cans get caught on fire. I would prefer that it be police precincts, police vehicles, maybe city right. vehicles, government stuff you know, try to avoid mom and pop stores, right. you know, like, and, and in, in the Bay, absolutely. The police know that when they're trying to herd the protesters, they very purposefully herd them into Chinatown oh. because they want the optics of right. protesters, you know, spray painting Chinatown. Mm, um, I see. And, uh, and that that's on purpose, you know? So I think like we need to be more aware of like, where are the police forcing us to go and are we responding appropriately you know so let's get back to um we briefly talked about kyle chapman and base spartan so base spartan they were there present during the berkeley protests yeah yep uh base stickman became base stickman base stickman and actually Yeah, uh, he became that. At, uh, actually, I think Bass Spartan, too. I think they both became, you know, nano celebrities. Yeah, um, they did. In Berkeley. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, like, uh, that was when Shields started showing up a lot more. Because okay. the left was not allowed to bring sticks right. or weapons, straight up weapons to protest. But the right were. So, you know, we started to make do with shields and try to negotiate, like, figure out ways around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, there were times that I was like, well, I got to go do medic work at this protest. I wonder if I need to bring a bulletproof vest. Right. You know? Absolutely. Which limits, I- <clears throat> which limits my mobility, which makes me not as effective as a medic. Right. <clears throat> but I mean, and you also might protect, protect me from being stabbed. So like. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, hmm, stabbed or protecting myself or being more fluid in my movement. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a real concern. I, I know that yeah. I bring my Kevlar vest when I cover some of these protests for that reason. So did you, were you there when Richard Spencer got punched? The, the infamous uh, meme now? 
That was, I don't think, I think that was Portland. I oh, don't was that Portland? That was, I could remember. Yeah, okay. it, was, it wasn't in the Bay. I wish, but no. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great meme, though. It's just like, I, but I mean, think it's about beautiful. how that spawned also a conversation within liberal circles. I mean, this was a conversation. Is it okay to punch a Nazi? And, and I remember thinking to myself, like, is that an actual question that we should even be asking? Yes, of course it is. They're genocidal maniacs. Well, and here's and here's here's the thing that kept coming up was, is he Nazi enough? Is oh. he enough of a Nazi? You know, like, how can you tell when someone is enough of a racist that they yeah, deserve I this? And it's just like, oh, God. I mean, this you is know, a guy like, that's calling for a genocide of Jewish people that says Hitler did nothing wrong, that white people are the faces of the new what, uh, whatever. You know, I mean... It's insane. Yeah. I mean, how is this even debatable? So I just remember that that was going on and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is, that was, I think the first moment, it was a growth thing for me because I hadn't, I didn't realize, I think until that moment, how enabling liberals can be of fascism. That was when it first was like, you guys are seriously having this conversation? Okay, you're just enabling the fascists. Like, wow. Like that was a, that was very eye opening for me because up until that point I always thought, well I don't always agree with the economic principles that these guys engage in. They're a little too lousy fair for me, but at least they're against racism. At least they're against these things. And that was like the moment where I was like, maybe they're not. You well, know? and I mean I think that a lot of that is American exceptionalism and oh, 100%. caring caring about American exceptionalism over community community focused issues yeah right um and if it doesn't affect me then it doesn't it's not important i think that comes into play a lot and also like yeah i think that it it's it's shocking to me that it took until january 6th for liberals to like take stock and be like oh we're the oh right we're the people that allowed (laughs) hitler to come to power that was us we were the people who made that happen because yeah. we could have been resisting and we weren't and right. we, we were should enabling. have been, yeah. but we, we were quiet, you know, we were complicit because it wasn't affecting us personally. Right. And like, I think that that was a real come to Jesus moment um, for some liberals. And a week later it was like, poof, it's gone. It's gone now. <laughs> yeah. They're, they were temporarily woke. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing a bunch of newspapers that were that were, you know, regularly demonizing anti-fascists and anarchists, turning around and being like, "Maybe they oh, had a point." Whoopsie, they were right. Oh, oh, darn! <laughs> and then that was it. Like, you know, would they would they allow anti-fascists to write op-eds? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> Which like, is unfortunate. They should. But I have to say, without equivocation, I am pleasantly surprised with a lot of the stuff that Teen Vogue has published and continues to publish. They publish more um, really honest and authentic articles about these things than any of the mainstream political uh, journals do. And it's it's shocking to me that uh, uh, Teen Vogue, really? Teen Vogue is 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 better than the Washington Post in some capacities on politics. That's that's like crazy to me, but it's it's definitely the case. Well, I think that they are 
sort of responding to a very different audience and a very different advertisers. Right. Zoomers, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, the kinds of advertising, I mean, because a lot, so much of this is about advertisers, right? And about who will pay to advertise on the site. Right. I think that people who are paying to advertise on Teen Vogue are like, ooh, this is edgy and the kids like it. So yes, we're still happy to advertise. Well, Washington Post is very, you know, boomer conservative. Yeah. In yeah, and 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 not in a in a political way necessarily, though often, right. but like conservative in terms of what they'll cover and like how they'll cover it. They're very careful. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that 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 carefulness is something that plagues a lot of um a lot of platforms who are who are scared. They're right. scared to lose money and therefore lose their jobs, you know? Yeah. And so they don't they don't take on anything challenging. Teen Vogue started taking on challenging things and it was extremely successful. Right. And I so, mean they got um, me as a subscriber because of it. I'm like, I can't believe I mean I'm I'm fifty and I'm like, I'm going to subscribe to Teen Vogue now. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think it's great. And I think that it speaks to a generation that is more politically curious and is more interested. Um, And I really appreciate that it breaks down these big academic things into things that are easier for the layman to understand. Um, It doesn't insist that you do all of the reading because a lot of our like leftist, you know, uh, platforms are very much like, oh, I'm sorry, you haven't read... Kropotkin oh well we can't even have a conversation until you've done that and like that's super alienating and frustrating like Honestly, most philosophers like, haven't read Kropotkin I mean come on like, I agree I mean, with him and his book was a slog you know and yeah, like he's one exactly. of the easier ones so like if it was if it took me a month and a half to read the bread book you know, who am I to tell somebody else that they don't deserve to be a leftist because they can't bother? I know. It's crazy. It's, it's, but you're not and so wrong. Teen, so Teen Vogue creates like an interesting in the middle that right. people are like, oh, okay, yeah, I can read that, you know. And, uh, you know, for, for a minute, I think Vice was willing to do that in part because they're trying to distance themselves from Gavin right. unofficially. Um but uh, but yeah, they they were also kind of skittish. Like I I did an article on on Juggalos actually, and one of the things that I wrote about in that article was how, you know, the police want to call Juggalos a gang, but aren't the police the ones who are really acting like a gang? Yeah. And that was yeah. too hot for Vice. Ah. Yeah. And I was like, wow, really? So I, you know, I published that on my medium instead because I still think it's a really reasonable argument. You have, I think it's more than reasonable. You have police officers threatening businesses that if they don't give them free stuff, they won't come and like take calls from that business. Like, that's what the mafia does. Exactly. That is literally what a gang does. Yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, um, we have literal gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's Department. So, I mean, I don't think that's a crazy controversial ar- argument whatsoever. I didn't think so either, but apparently it, it was. <laughs> apparently Vice does, huh? Um, I so, want to um, shift gears for a minute and talk about some of the writing you've done in regards to sex work, because I also think this is incredibly compelling and also a topic a lot of people don't want to touch. But I think 
I think we need to discuss these things because at some point as a country, we need to have a conversation about whether or not we want to hold on to our puritanical values or really look yeah. at whether or not sex work should be um, decriminalized in the very least or legalized or something of that nature. So um, I read your Cosmopolitan piece um, on you being a sex worker in the 1920s or 1920s, in your 20s. <laughs> I look great for that. I was say you look fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, in your 20s and it was a very very compelling uh, authentic uh, piece and I know that you've written other articles in this area um, what is your viewpoint first of all on decriminalization versus legalization because I know that not everybody agrees on that I'd be curious to know what you think the best method is and how that would look in the future yeah so most um, most sex work activists in the states are pro decriminalization and that is because we don't trust the government to be in control of it okay <laughs> um the yeah. government has shown itself to be incapable of being fair and unbiased in how they control it um nevada is a great example of that okay. girls who work in brothels in nevada are often not allowed to leave the brothel after dark they aren't allowed to go into town by themselves wow. like there's these weird requirements that they're expected to fulfill and mm. the towns get away with that because it is legal and therefore they are able to create all of these restrictions i see um also mandatory testing is something that sounds like it could be good on paper but in practice is really invasive um and so i think in order to trust legalization you would need to trust the police, which pah, you need to trust the government, which pah, and you need to trust like, you know, the legal system, which right. so like <laughs> if you don't trust any of that, you're probably not going to go for legalization because okay. none of the things that would end up enforcing that are trustworthy. Right, right, right. And they're all run by white dudes who are True. obviously going to favor themselves. So, yeah. So I, I think decriminalization is where I stand pretty much for all harm reduction things. Okay. I'm also that way about hard drugs. Oh, I yeah. think that decriminalization makes the most sense. It seems to be the most effective. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, and I'm also against the like um, criminalization of clients, which is another thing that sometimes gets brought up in sex work conversations. I think that um, making it legal to sell sex but not to buy it means yeah, that you get that clients make sense, who don't it? care mm -hmm. about the law. And um, that is more dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah. makes sense. So, and then talk to me about uh, London has a form, I guess it's a form of decriminalization, sort of, but how, how are their laws different? So, when I was, when I was working out there, that was from, like 2008 to 2012 um it was effectively decriminalized okay. like you were able to call the vice squad for help and i mean also i will say i was white i passed as middle class i worked indoors so right. i wasn't considered a bad sex worker um the ways in which i did my sex work were ways that were societally accepted at the time um if I was a, a street-based sex worker or if I was putting up ads in phone boxes, that would have been more of a problem. 
Um, And so there is a classism inherent there. There is a racism inherent there. There is a anti-immigrant sentiment that happens as well. Uh, um, But I really appreciated that if you were an indoor sex worker working alone, you were, you were fine. Um, Now, an issue with that is that working alone is more risky, you know, like you couldn't have somebody who knew your whereabouts or controlled your schedule. You couldn't work in a brothel um, legally. Right. So like you didn't have that sense of community and the protection that comes from having other people around, which I understand why people thought that that was bad, that it was bad to have a madam. It was bad to have a brothel um, because sure, it can be exploitative, you know, right. But so can working alone when you don't have any way to protect yourself and you're seeing this client one-on-one, you know, like there's, there's risks in both. Um, and I think that there's a lot of the sex work organizations in the UK were focused on like workers' rights as it pertains to sex work, like setting, setting fair rates right. and like making sure that you know, you had cooperatives instead of like top-down brothel models um, that cut down on the risk of, uh, um, I'm forgetting the word now, but like objectification and like exploitation. That makes sense. That makes sense. So also I wanted to talk to you about, you know, uh, there's a thing that happens in the United States from feminists that's always kind of puzzled me in a way and it's the way in which a lot of um a lot of them can slut shame other women for the choices that they make which seems to me to be the antithesis of being a feminist right it's looking at other women through a very patriarchal lens so you're viewing other women through the same lens that men do if you think that women are either sluts or not sluts or angels or whores or whatever i mean if that's the view that viewpoint you're looking it's very patriarchal. It's, it's antithesis to being a feminist. And it really bothers me. Um, why is it that that is still a pervasive viewpoint when it comes to feminism in this country? Well, so, I mean, again, like, I, I mean, I don't know. It could be a lot of different things, right? But, yeah. like, I suspect what I, what I see happen a lot is it's a desire to have control, right? It's a desire to believe that if you are in, if you are behaving properly, if you are doing the right things, then you won't get hurt. And I think that the desire to say, oh, well, these, these are bad girl behaviors and these are good girl right. behaviors is a way of saying, okay, well, if I don't do the bad girl behaviors, I won't get attacked. I won't get raped. I won't get my children taken away like you know I won't get hurt um and I think it it comes from a place of fear and Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult to address because like how do you you have to compassionately address this fear when this person is lashing out at you and that is a really really difficult thing to do no it is it absolutely is I'm not always capable of doing it but neither am I I try (laughs) because I see that I, I try because like when I think of it as like, oh, right, like 
I mean, and I, I, as someone who's doing consent culture work, I've been doing that for like, you know, 10 years, um, yeah. working especially in alt sex communities. Okay. Um, you see that behavior a lot of like, oh, well, they were asking for it or they put themselves in that situation. They should have known better. Right. And the reason that people do that is because they're hoping that they won't get hurt that they know the information that will prevent them from getting hurt. Um, and I think that it depends on this belief that these things are predictable and they're not, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I mean, I'm someone who was raised by a second wave feminist. I learned karate from an early age. I was completely unprepared for being raped by an acquaintance. I was prepared to be raped by a stranger jumping out at me from the bushes. I wasn't prepared for date rape, you know, like, because that wasn't what I had been taught to recognize at all. And so I think that there is that, that desire to be like, oh, well, that can't be true. They couldn't have been victimized because that makes it more of a possibility that I could be victimized or that I already have been oh, yeah. like, when I started, when I started doing consent culture work 10 years ago, I remember talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about times that our consent had been violated within the BDSM community as submissive women. And we were like, oh yeah, I guess like by the legal definition, oh fuck, you know, like it's just suddenly flooded into us that like we had thought of it as like three or four times maybe but when we really thought about it, we realized it was hundreds of times right. and that we had just internalized that as part of the process, that that was just, that was just society. That was just what it was like. You know, that's just what you expect being a woman or being submissive or whatever. Right. And like, when we realized that that was not normal, that that was, or it didn't have to be normal, um, it was extremely traumatic. Yeah. You know, it was extremely upsetting to realize how often these things happen yeah. and how quickly we as as feminists, as women who were educated on sexual assault, how we had been fooled, how yeah. we fooled ourselves into minimizing the abuse that we had suffered in order to survive. Yeah. And like, so I think what I'm what I've come to to at the advanced stage of 37 is that, you know, I try to remember that we're all wounded animals stumbling through the brush and we're doing the best we can. Right. And sometimes we can do a lot better, <laughs> but like, if I realize that these people are saying these things be because they need to feel safe. Right. The way that I talk to them about it is different. I come from a place of, of love, tough love, but love versus coming from a place of like, well, you know what? Fuck you too. Right. And like, you know, and sometimes, sometimes you're not having a conversation in good faith and it's not worth trying. Sometimes. Sometimes. 
But, but you know, I you're right say, about all that. I think, uh, you know, you're more yeah. likely, I don't think people realize you're more likely to be assaulted, sexually assaulted by somebody you know than you are a stranger, even though for decades it was always da- stranger danger. You know, that's what yep. we were told. And there, de- there definitely needs to be a conversation on that. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it is super scary when you internalize that the person that's the most likely to hurt you is your lover. Like, yeah. What do you do with that? Do you, you do ever with love that, again? Right? Like, no, you know, yeah. it's, I, I think I saw something on TikTok that was like, you know, the worst thing a woman could do for herself is date a man. Just don't do it. Yes. <laughs> just, we're the worst. <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, it, <sighs> you're joking, but yeah, also statistically, it is a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that is, Really, it's unfair. Yeah, you know? no, it's crazy that that's the world we're in. You know, part of it is also educating, and I think that's changing. Like, I know the difference between Generation X men and the Zoomers is just this wide, wide, yeah. wide cavern, uh, ravine. That's the word, like a ravine. The way they view women and the way they treat women, talk about women and sex is just so different. It's amazing to me. Which gives me hope because my generation yeah. of men were pretty messed up, I'd say. I, on a scale of 1 to 10 in misogyny, they pretty much all rank a 12, I think. Well, and, then- and I feel like with the millennials, the millennial men I know, like, they had the language, but they hadn't really internalized any of it, right. you know? Right, And so, like, they sounded very woke, but... In terms of actual emotional maturity, they, they hadn't really done the work. Right, right. Well, they um, were raised it, by it, boomers and Gen X men, so, I mean. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and like, hey, you know, my dad is a really good example of a boomer man who did the work and, oh, like, great. is constantly doing the work. And yeah, it's not all a good them. example. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that. That's the thing, like, you know, not to not all men, right? right. But, like, it doesn't have to be all men. No, I think no. that's more what not all men is about, is that it doesn't have to be all of you. It's just the collective you have to do group the work and how to they make see. sure it's not you. That's right, right. But collectively as a group, there are certain things that that group of uh, accepts within their culture, even if they're not part of, of making that happen. You know what I'm saying? They accept it. Yeah, so yeah. That's the problem, right? I mean, if you look at all of the recent Me Too movement claims, a lot of them were coming from that, from my generation of men and older, right? And none of it was shocking to me. I'm like, yep, I can identify with that story. I can identify, because I have my own stories. All women my age do, and and all women your age do, right? So so there was definitely, um, and there's definitely something to hearing that that's very healing, because then you realize I'm not alone in that experience. I'm not alone in internalizing it. I'm not alone in not being public about it and just, you know, swallowing it, whatever. So yeah. that, that's a that's a collective thing that I think women have done as, as a coping survival method. I think you're absolutely correct on that. So it's, I think we're at a place though now, especially for the younger generation, the Zoomers coming up, that they won't need to do that, hopefully. I think they're more, they have a different viewpoint and um, I, the men, the boys have a different viewpoint and it's much healthier and I'm glad to see it. Yeah, and, and they're, they're better at calling each other in. Which I think is something that we're yeah. still learning. We're still, yeah. You know, hundred <laughs> percent. So and what? They're, they're better at being called in. That's they're true. better at hearing that they fucked up, and yeah. I think we are terrible at that. Like yeah. we do not want to hear that we fucked up ever. 
and we lash out at anybody who says that we are anything less than perfect, yeah. even though we know that that's unreasonable. Like right. if we listen to our own self monologue, we're like, I'm the worst, you know, but if anyone else says it, then no, no, no. Yeah, hundred <laughs> no, percent. And so I think, I think it's, it's nice. It's nice to see and learn from that. Like you can be compassionate for fuck ups and that yeah. I, I, you know, and like, maybe I'm naive, but like, I really truly believe that most people want to do good. Yeah. Or do right. You know, they don't yeah. actually want to hurt other people. Right. Um, and finding ways to explain to them that they might not have intended it, but they did hurt other people. And here's how they can stop doing that is, uh, is going to be a lifelong lesson, I think. And I hope I keep learning it. Right, right, right. Indeed. Um, I want to shift gears one more time because there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about that I was really fascinated by. You had a Medium post that you did on the company Teespring. And, oh, yeah. Uh, wow, Teespring. So uh, <laughs> basically yeah. they had taken down a, a, a very basic anti-fascist T-shirt that just had the classic uh, anti-fascist emblem, said anti-fascist. There was nothing denoting violence or anything on it. It was just a super basic t-shirt that there should have been zero problems with. Yet they removed the listing. And after they removed the listing, they said it was because something about promoting violence, what have you. But then you go onto their website and you see t-shirts that, okay, so bringing up the Camp Auschwitz thing, the guy that just stormed the Capitol on January 6th, who was wearing the Camp Auschwitz, Auschwitz shirt, probably bought it on Teespring because they were selling them. Then we saw a oh. uh, base stickman, Kyle Chapman, who we talked about earlier that runs the proud Goy telegram account. He had an account on there with all kinds of anti-Semitic t-shirts. Um, the proud boys, the official proud boys had a um, page on there where they were selling their stuff. Um, anyway, going on and on, you, there was all kinds of examples of really incredibly racist anti-Semitic things that were still being sold on there. What gives with that? Well, so I remember the first time I heard about Teespring doing this, it was actually around 2017, might be even 2016, when a friend of mine, uh, L. Armageddon, had a shirt that said, um, what was it? Oh, God. It was it was something like like, fuck you Nazi or something like oh, that. Oh, okay. So um, that, wait, so now we can't say fuck you Nazi. That's a bad thing. I'm sorry. In what world are Nazis acceptable? <laughs> I mean, God, I wish I could remember what exactly, um, wow. What exactly it said. Uh, you know, don't worry off. about it. We'll look there it up. There it is. Okay. I looked it up. Fuck off Nazi scum is what it said. And Teespring said that that was inappropriate and they took it down. And I was really angry about it at the time um, because like, again, that is, not a, that is not a threat. That is not violence unless language is violence, in which case everything that Teespring was posting about Auschwitz certainly should have been considered violence That's as right. well. So then this next round that happened when um, Antifa International had their shirt taken down with the, um, what was it? I think it's the Iron Front symbol. Yeah. Um, 
I had posted a shirt that was making fun of, you know, those biker shirts that you see that's like, hey, snowflake, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. So I did one that said, hey, snowflake, I believe Black Lives Matter, people over property, gender is a construct, all cops are bastards, America was never great, I am Antifa, and I don't give a fuck if that offends you. Nice. Right? <laughs> So, like, in the same vein, and it's really badly designed on purpose. It yeah, so like it's five funny. different Five different types of font. It's horrible to look at. Five different and, types of font. <laughs> I mean, because they're, they're all like that, right? They are all like that. And, you can tell they're just, like, they don't know how to use a graphic software uh, at all, and they're just pulling, like, public domain, or not even public domain, the free gift stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, it hurt me to make this shirt. Um and it. it was gone in 12 hours. And I was like, I mean, I know that it looks offensive, but it doesn't actually say anything offensive <laughs> on it or anything that's not covered by freedom of speech. Right. They decide, They said that they thought all cops are bastards was hate speech. <laughs> um, they specifically said that uh, oh my God. campaigns that promote or glorify hatred towards people based on their age, race, ethnicity, national origin, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion are prohibited. Right, so but Cam Auschwitz doesn't, I, what the hell? Yeah, and I was like, hang on, so do you think that being a cop is a religion? Yeah, or what is, is it, it exactly? Or is it sexual orientation? Like, oof, what is it? What? Yeah. It's a and, job, um, people. It's a job. Right, and that isn't protected right. um, in most states. There are a couple of states that it is now. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was like, well, hang on. But what about these ones offering free helicopter rides or Antifa commies, hunting yeah. permits? Right. Like, th those are fine. And slowly Teespring began to take those down as I posted lists to them. Wow. Of, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? They then tried, because I made a fuss about it on Twitter they tried to prevent me from getting my income from another Teespring account. So they started to remove some of the right wing stuff, but only if they, if I told them where it was. I so only the things that I specifically said, what about this? And um, then after that, after I was making a fuss about that, um, then they started taking down any shirts relating to Antifa. <laughs> So I think they initially were like, oh, well, we'll start with like the, avoiding the Antifa hunting permit stuff. And then they just sort of widened that scope to anything Antifa is probably violent and therefore we should get rid of it. Right, um, okay. But what was interesting is that they then tried to prevent me from getting my income from another Teespring store that I had had years ago. Um, and so I had to fight them about that. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, just a huge argument constantly. Um, and it took me posting that Medium thing where I showed all of their emails, right. all of our back and forth, for them to finally pay me and leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. When I saw the Camp Auschwitz shirt, I was like, you're kidding me, right? Like, how are they? Wow. I have no words for this. I'm so... What are you working on now, Kitty? What are what is your latest work covering? I think you're working on a book. Yeah, so I actually I'm I'm working on two books, but I'm working on one first. Okay. 
So the first book that I'm working on is called Love Rebels or Love Rebels, depending. Um, and it's about um, being in a relationship as a radical activist while also not losing your mind or yourself. And I found that like a lot of my friends who are activists really struggle to balance their activism, which is a day-to-day life thing right. with relationships with their family, relationships with their, their lovers, relationships with coworkers, etc. And so I kind of wanted to write something that was like, hey, this is hard. Yeah. Let's go through a few different ways right. to tackle this. Like, how do you handle it when your partner is, you know, someone who will only do this kind of activism you know, who will only vote and write letters. And you're someone who is a frontline activist. Like, how do you, how do you maintain that relationship? So that's what one of them is going to be. And then the second one is about um, juggalos and, and politics within juggalo circles uh, called The Struggalo is Real. And it's based on some of my experience with um, creating Struggalo Circus I created that with an ex of mine, which was juggalos and leftist activists coming together for a common purpose of like showing up at protests and being supportive um, and how to do that, you know? So yeah, um, so I'm going to write something on that. And I'm, the, the struggle is real is going to talk about how juggalos aren't partisan, like they're not Democrats, they're not Republicans. I wouldn't even say that they're leftists or libertarians. Like they're just all of those things. There's jugglers all over the map. Um, but that there are still some core beliefs that they're really solid about. And so I'm going to be talking about those things. So okay, yeah. um, let's let's conclude this. So Kitty, if folks want to follow your work, where is a good place for them to do that at? Like your Medium, your Twitter? Yeah, um, so Twitter is at Kitty Stryker. My medium is kittystriker.medium.com. I have a Patreon, which is slash Kitty Stryker. Pretty much if you look up Kitty Kitty Stryker, Stryker. you will find me everywhere. (laughs) I will say, though, I did work in porn for a while. So do be careful about having your safe search turned on if you're at work. Um, I don't want to be held responsible if you happen to see me naked because you're looking for my political writing. Um, <laughs> actually you should consider writing some pieces about those experiences. I'm sure that would be like, there's very few journalists working in, in that area. I would, would be fascinated with writing in that area, you know, from, especially from a feminist perspective. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, I, because I haven't been actively doing as much sex work recently, I I've been more hands off writing about sex work, I do okay. want to go back and explore what it was like, like what it's like realizing now that I'm asexual and thinking yeah. about my experiences with sex work and how my asexuality made sex work a lot easier. And I that see. is kind of contrary to what people would think. And I want to explain why I think that is. So like, I've, I've definitely got some stuff in my mind around asexuality and sex work and, um, Yeah, like, you know, what is the self? What is a libido, actually? And, like, if sex is a performance to a certain extent, like, where does the performance stop and you begin? 
does it matter? Um, and so, like, I have a lot of thoughts about that stuff. I'd be, I would be completely just sucked into that article. I already am. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on the show, Katie. It's been a really uh, fantastic conversation. I appreciate the writing you do. Thank you for sharing your experiences. And really, it's your lived experiences, that I think, that make your writing so great, right? Because it's, it, well, your you pieces so are so authentic. You can tell they're coming from a certain uh, place of uh, having lived that experience. Yeah, well, thank you very much.